There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show. Wednesday morning, the 27th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. How the government spends our money was scrutinised by the Public Accounts Committee yesterday. The PAC is the Dolls Spending Watchdog. Its periodic report has raised many questions like how €721,000 was lost when an official in the National Treasury Management Agency mixed up dollars and euro and lost the three quarters of a million euro in the exchange rate. There were questions about how the 16 billion euro Apple tax bill lost near on 2,000 million euro falling in value to 14.2 billion over nine months and also questions about how the state is paying to barristers and how much it is paying to barristers while it mines the money that Europe says is owed to Ireland whether Ireland wants that money or not. How under a million euro was spent last year but 15 times more that some 50 million euro looks set to be spent this year on emergency accommodation. There was much more more, but the report was overshadowed by the €1 million euro printer, which was paid for in 2018, but as we near the end of this year, has never been turned on. Let's talk about this with local TD, Sinn Féin's Abel de Munster, who's a member of the Public Accounts Committee, and a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. People are aghast at this story. Well, it's, it's very, very alarming, I have to say, um at the time uh, when the clerk of the doll was in before the Public Accounts Committee was in July, and um, I became a member of the Public Accounts Committee in September, but my colleague David Cullinan had raised the issue um, of the, there was a 9.7 overspend on the IT systems, and he had queried uh, what it amounted to basically, but um, he had asked the clerk of the doll uh, about the printing equipment, the fact that there was a new printer, um, had been ordered and uh, the clerk of the doll's response was that uh, the printing equipment uh, that replaced the old printer and the print unit had come in at approximately 1.3 million. But as it turns out now, it appears from FOI documents that the cost of the print unit was uh, 808,000. Um, and that there was at least 236 spent in redesigning of the print room because they had gotten the, the measurements wrong, mm. you know. Um, it was too big for the space uh, that had been allocated for it, too tall in particular. Yes, yeah, yeah. And they, they, they had to do, the, had to do the, the adjustments, very, very costly adjustments. 
But um, the 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 concern is that at the time when the um, clerk of the doll was asked about the the printing equipment, he didn't actually give the information. You know, he didn't. He said it was approximately one point three, and at that time, uh, you know, the the pack committee had taken is word in good faith, if you like, that um, that was the cost of the print. But in no way did he go into the detail that there was an absolute hames made of it, you know, that they got the measurements wrong, it wouldn't fit into the printing room. And um, that that's that's a serious concern, you know, that uh, that detail wasn't given or why it wasn't given. You know, they had, as I said, they had taken his answers in good faith. But mm. that good faith, unfortunately, is gone now, you know, um, because it appears that it appears anyway that he was less than candid with PAC, you know, and that that's a, a serious concern. Right. Uh, you've uh, made judgment. Uh, so, uh, uh, what no, I mean, we're, we, we don't know. That's that's the, the whole issue here. Um, and I welcome the fact that he's going to furnish us with a report for tomorrow morning. And we'll have to go through that. And he said that he would uh, come into hmm. the PAC, you know, but... Uh, there's questions to be asked as to why he told us the printer cost 1.3 million when it it appears it it cost just over 800,000. Mm. You know, and why but the bill was for 1.3 million, wasn't it? Sorry? The bill was for 1.3 million. Yes, but mm. in, in direct response, he, he had said on printing equipment, we mm. replaced our printer and the print unit came in at approximately 1.3 million. So the print unit. So why did he not tell the committee that the difference between the two figures was accounted for by work carried out due to the wrong measurements. You why, know? Do, why, why do you and think it, he didn't? Well, I mean, you, you're you're thinking in the dark here, but maybe it's the fact that, and I don't know, but we'll know more tomorrow, maybe he di- didn't want to admit that the, the measurements were wrong in the first instance mm. and that they'd paid this huge amount of public money, people's money, taxpayers' money, um, and had made a complete bags of it. You so, know. so he knew then, did he? Uh, well, but he just wasn't well, we're, providing That's, that's what we're presuming because, because okay. it, it mm-hmm. appears from FOI documents that the print unit, as I said, mm. the, the co- total cost of the print unit itself was just over 800,000. Okay, so you're assuming, gave. you're assuming that Peter Finnegan, the clerk of the doll, knew uh, how the money had been spent but chose not to tell you. Well, I mean, we're, as I said, we don't know. We're waiting to find out. But as I said... I oh, know, you just um, said a moment ago that's yes, what you would assume. He, what he had said was um, that the print unit came in at approximately 1.3 million. Yeah, no, I the know. The print unit. Mm-hmm. You uh, know, and you assume that he knew otherwise. You, you, you assume he, he knew that that wasn't true. Well, we have to assume that because, um, you know, you would have... And But, I mean, maybe he'll, he'll prove us wrong, you know. My first gut instinct was that they perhaps didn't want it known that, you know, there was a a hames made of the the thing that the printer, they didn't check um, that the printer was the correct, that it was going to fit in the printing room and and all of that, you know. And another thing too, the printer's still not in operation. Mm. And uh, they have... There's a health and safety issue uh, surrounding that, uh, but... Um, uh, the Irish Times uh, broke uh, the story last weekend and it publishes uh, a timeline of events today and it says that in December 
Peter Finnegan was briefed by Derek Dignam and it was the only direct correspondence sent to him. Uh, it doesn't mention uh, how the money was being spent. It did say that there was some structural works that needed to be undertaken to make sure that it could fit. Uh, but are you sure you're not rushing to judgment on this man and making these comments uh, in public and uh, undermining, well, no, his, undermi- undermining his integrity in the public no, domain? No, I'm, I'm not at all. I mean, it's, uh, the first thing I said was we, we just don't know until we get the full report tomorrow. But you said you, you, but it you, appears, you had made an assumption. No, but I said it, it appears that he may not have been entirely candid on this issue, you know. Um, that's that's the worry we have because it's it's the job of the public accounts committee to account for public spending and to ensure that best uh, you know value for money and all of that sort of thing. So but why not why it, why why, why not um, looking at it the other way and assume that he may have been entirely candid on it uh, and that perhaps uh, there was information that hadn't been made available to him and that he'll report that to you tomorrow. Well, before jumping to conclusions. No, but that's very much a possibility, and if if that is the case. Then fair enough. But you didn't. That's, you that's didn't mention enough. that no, at it, all. You, no, you, you, but what I said was, you were very, that when he was very. asked a specific question, he said the print unit came in at approximately three point one point three million. Yeah, and you so assumed it was a cover up. I mean, you said a moment no, ago there was a cover up. Furnished with all of that information, but he's the clerk of the doll, and he knew he was coming in to to answer the questions. Now, perhaps. You know, as I said, he wasn't given that information, and maybe he'll explain that tomorrow. But from the information that was given to me, well, I think you're only saying I, that because I asked you no, if that might no, be the I'm, case. No, a few I'm moments saying, ago, you were I saying said, you assumed it was a cover up and that he was. No, I, I never choosing. used the word cover up at all. No, I Mike, think you did use uh, the word no, cover up. Yeah. No, I, no, I don't think I did. But if, mm. if I, I did, um, but what I'm saying is, he, in the direct response he gave, he said that the print unit came in at approximately 1.3 million, but. Um, you know, you'd wonder, maybe it wasn't the clerk of the doll, maybe it was the, the person that furnished him with this yeah. information, didn't do that. But we need to know exactly, and we need to know why they didn't do it. And we need to know, did, did was the, um, the CNAG made aware of the issue? Was he, was, you know, was he told about it too? There's lots of questions, because even if, you know, the case is... Okay, well, for anybody who heard it differently, are, are you telling us now that, you just don't know the answer and you're waiting to hear from the clerk. Well, we know what we know from the Public Accounts Committee in July, the responses that the clerk of yeah. the, the doll. Do you accept gave. that you gave people the impression here this morning that you jumped to conclusions and well, that no, you no, rushed that you rushed questions. to judgment without giving somebody a fair hearing? No, we're, we're all asking these questions because I said course, he was asked a very direct question in July. Now, if it's a case, but what I'm saying is we don't know whether it was the clerk of the doll that didn't go into the finer detail mm. of it, or whether it was somebody that that passed him on this information that didn't divulge exactly that the printer, in fact, the printer unit only cost 800,000, but there was another 500,000, you know, that was accounted, not accounted for, if you like, in the 1.3 million that was given, the figure that was actually given. And we need to find that out, mm. whether it was the clerk at the doll or the person that furnished him with that information. I imagine the clerk at the doll, like everybody else, would know, would want to know what happened. Uh, but mm. uh, what we do know is that the uh, printing uh, machinery is uh, in situ now, but as you say, has not been turned on. Uh, are you calling on SIF2 to drop this health and safety concern that they have? Well, w- we want to find out exactly 
what's what, what the full reason is for it. You know, uh, there was other reports that, saying that the 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 printers uh, had difficulty in in operating or, or didn't know. And well, they want to be paid more. They want to be paid more for operating it. Are, are you asking? Well, I didn't hear that. Now, in all honesty, I didn't hear that. Um, I was questioning the fact that they hadn't consulted with the printers. You know that that was a bit astonishing. Well, that, uh, that also needs to be explained as to exactly why it's not in operation. I think, you know, it, I think it's reported, uh, widely reported, that they're looking for additional payments uh, for operating equipment that they hadn't operated before. And they also want a health and safety assessment of, of this uh, equipment to, to be concluded before they use it. Well, I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm not, as I said, that's the first I've heard of it, but on what basis do they want uh, health and safety? Well, it's new equipment. Safety? It's new, I presume, yeah. 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 Well, I, I don't know, but um, I've, we'll wait and see what we find out tomorrow, you know, exactly mm. why. But from a public accounts uh, committee perspective, it's we're charged with... Um, do you think that people doing this job before should be paid more for doing the job with new equipment? Well, I don't know, Mike, to be honest, because I don't know what um, extra work it would entail or, you know, okay. I, I just don't know. As I said, I honestly didn't hear that until you just said it to me. So okay. um, I don't know. Maybe the unions would be able to answer that. Um, but the fact that there was 236,000 spent on refurbishing because it appears that the, somebody somewhere had got the measurements wrong. I mean, that's. That's astonishing, really. You know yeah, that amount. And, I mean, it's almost and, and the cost, uh, uh, and then the rent. Yeah, the cost of storing it in Ballymount uh, is uh, said to be twelve thousand euro. Twelve thousand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there were. I think the heads of the Oireachtas were given four months grace on the storage. Yeah, because it was, it was there for ten charged months. Charged thereafter. Yeah, yeah, and that mm-hmm. amounted to twelve. So mm-hmm. it came to almost a quarter of a million bar two thousand. You know, for the. Okay. The adjustment. I'm sure we'll be hearing more about this. Phenomenal amount of public money, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll be hearing more about this uh, later in the day uh, when business resumes in Leinster House. You're in Leinster House. Uh, you only mm-hmm. just made it in this morning because uh, of uh, the city being brought to a standstill because of uh, the farmers' protests. Are, are you with the farmers or would you ask them to call it off? Well, I mean, there's massive, massive. Everyone, firstly, everyone has a right to protest, and I'd be the very first. They've shut the city down, that. though. Is that but their right? It, it is manic out there. It's you know, it's manic. Even coming up Merrion Square, there, it's all cordoned mm. off, and the traffic, and partly to do with the bad morning as yeah. well. Um, the do you support the farmers' action? Danced. Well, I support anyone's right to protest. Do you support the farmers' honest. action in the way that they've taken this action? Well, I don't know if if you know grinding the city to a halt for. Several days. You can well think about it for a second, and then tell mm-hmm. us if it's a good idea or not. Well, I mean, if you're talking about everyone's the right to protest. Yeah, but but, to, but you to, said you didn't know whether grinding the city to a halt was good mm-hmm. or not. Uh, I mean, no, people can't get to work. Days. You can have a Pe- right to. Yeah, well, just let me finish. Then you have a right to protest, but dragging it out over several days into the city, you know, in the right into the heart of the city centre, not only does it affect commuters coming mm. in in and out of the city traffic businesses all that sort of thing whatever about staging your protest for a day which is what most protesters would do they'd have a you know a one day protest but staging it over a few days just compounds problems i literally just 
got up the stairs and in the lift mm-hmm. five minutes before the phone rang, sure. you know, so. But are you um, asking the farmers to stand down the protest? No, I wouldn't ask them to stand. So, that's up to themselves. They're so it's up to them they're, to... No, to, they're a determined bunch and they're yeah. not listening to anybody else, I don't think. Um, I, I well, mean, they're, they're, I don't know if the government have arranged to meet with their rep- representatives to bring this to, you know, to try and resolve the issues. That's that's the key. Yeah, I believe here. there was a meeting and in the, the department this morning. But uh, outside of that, uh, would you ask the farmers to stand down the protest or if they continue this indefinitely, uh, do they enjoy your support? Well, I wouldn't ask them to stand down the protest. But what I would say to them is that, you know, you can make your protest and your concerns known in a one day protest. But to drag it on indefinitely, you know, if are you asking the them not to? This morning, if they have the meeting this morning with government officials mm. and, and government ministers, then hopefully some some resolve will come to that. But it's up to the government then to meet with them and to, to try and resolve it to, so that the city isn't ground to a halt and people in panic, you know, trying to get to work and that sort of thing. OK, so you're not supporting uh, the idea of this going Continu- on, no, continuing, continue. and you're not yeah, asking yeah. them I wouldn't, to stand it No, down. I wouldn't ask yeah. them to step down because... Primarily because they wouldn't okay. listen anyway. Okay. They're, they're, as I said, they're a determined bunch. Oh, I think a lot of but I can't see the <laughs> argument. I can't see where there's a benefit in prolonging it for days and then causing maximum disruption to everyone else. Okay. You can have your one-day protest and get your... You know, and if they had their meeting this morning, you know, they, they maybe could have considered suspending the protest this morning until, the, you know, mm. they had the meeting and to okay. see. But in the midst of a city centre... Uh, you're grinding literally everything to a halt. Okay, got to leave there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, and uh, well done for getting there in time. Uh, Thank you, as I say. Melda Munster, Sinn Féin TD for Loud, who is a member of uh, the Public Accounts Committee. The Michael Reid Show. Now, as uh, you probably heard on uh, the programme uh, last week, uh, the Shannon was uh, told how waiting times on ambulances in County Louth over the course of uh, the last year exceeded an hour on more than six occasions. Times of uh, between an hour and 18 minutes and an hour and 27 minutes. Uh, we heard uh, some of uh, the response uh, from Minister Daly on the programme uh, last week. Uh, the question was posed by Fianna Fáil Senator Keith Swanick based on information given given to him by local councillor Erin McGreehan, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. You're particularly, morning, you're particularly concerned about people in the north of the county. Yeah, well, I suppose, yes, Michael, thanks very much for um, the opportunity to speak. And I want to thank Senator Keith Swanick as well for placing the commencement notice last week um, uh, after a conversation with me. Yes, I'm concerned with, with the entire region of North Loud, particularly because I am the local representative there. And as a as a constituent myself, I, I live there. If you if there's a gen, there's a genuine worry of people, if you need if you need an ambulance, there is a fear that you could be waiting one to two hours for that ambulance. Okay, the minister didn't seem as uh, concerned as perhaps you or Senator Swanick were. No, I know. I suppose that's the that's the modus operandi of the of the government and a government representative to to you know, to pay down a situation. When you have a waiting time, which is a fact, a waiting time is of, of that of that length, then there is genuine fear. And if you are living in these in this, these areas, you are fearful that you are going to be waiting one and a half hours for for an ambulance to come. And it it, it plays into an awful lot of other issues. You know, you've on you've long waiting mm. long waiting turnaround times. You know, as you, when when an ambulance arrives in the hospital, and there's there's a wait. A, a, 
a waiting time to, to discharge that patient from the ambulance into A&E. So it's a whole vicious circle. And my my colleague, Deputy, Deputy Declan Burnock, has been raising this issue as well. Mm, I understand, uh, but uh, the Minister was saying uh, that there's a, a lot of elements at, at play. Uh, there's uh, ambulances that come from the north, ambulances that come from neighbouring counties. Uh, ambulances are prioritised depending on uh, the call uh, and uh, what it is uh, being asked to respond to. So in the cases uh, that you cite, uh, perhaps uh, they weren't priority calls. Well, there was a priority call last April and there was a two-hour waiting list a waiting time when a, a, an individual was was injured in Greenall Port and they did highlight that it was dangerous and it was two hours waiting list. but it came from Blanchardstown and that was, that's too far away for an ambulance to be coming to, to northbound when you're waiting two hours for an ambulance to come from Blanchardstown think of the logistics of, of that um, that that's wrong Okay I have to leave it there. We're tight on time, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us, Fianna Fáil uh, Councillor Aaron McGreehan. Now let's uh, go back uh, to gridlock to Dublin. Connor Faulkner of uh, the AA, Director of Consumer Affairs with AA Ireland, is on the line. Good morning to you, Connor, and thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. We all have a constitutional right to assembly, a right to protest, uh, and so on, uh, but is this appropriate in your mind? Well, it's disruptive, that's for sure. There's, uh, there, you know, quite a bit of collateral damage uh, and citizens quite heavily disrupted. Yesterday, traffic was really, really bad and I think people were caught by surprise and, you know, uh, lots of people had business uh, disrupted and appointments missed and all that sort of thing. Today, again, a very, very heavy day for traffic in Dublin City. Perhaps not quite as bad as it was yesterday. Uh, I think people are aware of the protests now and, and are trying to avoid. But again, it's another disrupted day and you wonder what good this does um, uh, as I say a lot of collateral damage whatever points are being made. If you can't get to work, if you can't get a bus if you can't get a taxi, if you can't get to the airport to catch your flight uh, it really is disruptive let alone the disruption to business in the city. Well, that's right. And look, Dublin's a very busy place for traffic. And we know as we go through the winter season, there'll be a few days. You know, there'll be, you know, we'll have a day when there's a really bad storm or, you know, we might get a bit of snow. We might get a day where there's a, a bad crash on the M50 and there's complete traffic chaos. We get a few of those every year. Um, and they're very disruptive to the economy. They wind up costing us a lot of money and they're a real pain in the neck. We could do without inflicting days like that on ourselves. Um, uh, you know, it it is just disruptive, and you know, it's you know, let's be honest, mm. it's not the way to make friends and influence people. Okay, and can can the farmers be asked to move on, or can they be forced to move on? Well, you know, everybody does have a, a, a right to protest, and we all want to live in a society where that's true. So there has to be a degree of balance. Um, you know, a, 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 a protests are perfectly valid and sound, um, but you know. Uh, it's a question of degree, I think. Okay, Connor, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed, and we'll watch that space. As they say, Connor Faulkner, Director of Consumer Affairs with AA Ireland. Wednesday morning, you should have your local newspapers, or they're available to you at least in your shops. We have them here in the studio with us, and Marie Kearns is here to tell us uh, what's on uh, the front pages. And we begin with a local hero who makes for the front page of uh, the Drawhead Independent. That's right, um, Michael. Liam O'Keefe has been recognised with a national award for his fundraising efforts after raising almost one million for various 
various charities. He was named as one of Ireland's most inspirational people, announced at the inaugural Gallery Tale Sunday Independent Inspiration Awards and was selected as Ireland's inspirational charity champion. Okay, concern there a moment ago about ambulance response times. Concerns about response times from uh, the fire service making for the lead story on the the Dundalk Democrat. Staffing level fears for local fire station is the headline on the lead story and it's reporting serious concerns have been raised following an incident which was highlighted over the weekend. Uh, Local man Olive uh, McAlevey was told by a member of the local fire brigade that attended a tumble dryer fire at a house in Green Acres on Dock on Saturday that due to a call out to a road traffic accident on the M1 motorway at the same time that the local station was left without sufficient crew to deal with the subsequent tumble dryer call out as two units were already at the M1 incident. It meant that a crew from Drogheda had to be requested leaving to a longer response time and uh, the gentleman explained that he was told by a member of the fire crew at the scene when they got a call out like they, they did there was nobody to cover the station or the town while they were gone. They have retainers but are not enough to fulfil a crew so since four appliances from three different stations were out they were out also Michael from Dunleer and RD it leaves it that Drogheda are the cover who are 20 miles away so okay. concern over that We go to the Dundalk leader in a, a story which pays tribute to a, a local woman that spans two continents That's right Michael Fishing Tribute to Memory of Melissa is the headline of the Dundalk leader and it tells how a small community in the Volta region of Ghana now have a working well in their village thanks to the fundraising efforts of friends and family of Melissa O'Reilly from Carlingford who was only 29 when she passed away from cancer last year. Kieran Phillips, a first cousin of Melissa, was determined to do something in her memory and so he set this in motion and it was thanks to the fundraising efforts of the local community that this dream has been realised in her memory. Okay, tribute to uh, another person uh, on the the front page of the Argus in Dundalk, a very young person at that time. That's right, Michael. Very sad news about the death of 11-year-old Dara McNally who died on Sunday just weeks after being diagnosed with aggressive cancer. Dara had autism and his heartbroken parents, Colleen and Paul, have asked Myrna's at his funeral today to wear blue to raise awareness about autism. So we think of them today. Okay, and uh, the Meath Chronicle from page story uh, pictures a woman in hospital in Drogheda. That's right, Michael. And this is about a young Navan woman's painful wait for spinal surgery, which has seen her lying in a hospital bed in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital for over 20 days, waiting for vital surgery. And Casey writes that the mother of two, Sinead Finnegan, is waiting for a bed to become available in the Beaumont Hospital and is con- in considerable pain. She went to the doctor and called service in Navan on Monday, November 4th, and was sent from there to Navan Hospital and then by ambulance to Drogheda, where she was told she would need surgery on bulging discs in her spine. Every day she's hoping a bed will become available in Bowment only to be disappointed. Okay, hope you get well soon, Sinead. Have you ever had a rat in your house? It's not nice. Ever had many rats in your house. It's uh, worse than having a a rat in your house. Uh, It's horrible. It's dangerous and it is frightening. But the housing crisis has forced many people to live in accommodation that is simply not fit for purpose. And because people have nowhere else to go, some pay handsomely for the privilege. Marie Kearns has been talking to a local woman who's been telling her about her own family's experience. I'm in the rented home of Mary, not her real name, who lives here in the northeast with her husband and children. She brought me here today to highlight how tough people have it who are forced to rent because they are turned down for mortgage and earn too much 
to get a council house or to even make it onto the housing list. The first thing that I notice when I walk through the door is the smell of dettol. Mary, why is the house stinking of dettol? Um, because I, the house was invaded with rats for the last four weeks and now the rats are dying off and it's a smell of dead rats in the cavity walls. How long are you in this property? Uh, coming up to 20 months now. And how much are you paying a month? 1200 1,200. And I'm looking around me. There's mould on the walls. The house is cold and you tell me that the boiler isn't working properly and that the fire is not in use because of a carbon monoxide leak a couple of months ago. I see too that there's buckets against the doors, the interior doors, because you tell me that some of them won't close firmly, they won't close properly and you need the buckets to try and keep them closed. The lino in the kitchen, there's bits missing out of it because you tell me the rats have eaten it. How do you feel about having to live in somewhere like this? Well, we've tried to get um, to rent somewhere else and a lot of the properties are only done for six months. Some of the other properties don't want children um, and I don't have a choice. I don't have a choice. And then is it too expensive in other properties? A lot of the houses around this area where I'm trying to keep my children close to their home and family is running up to 1,600, 1,700. The closest one I could find today was 1,800. The situation is, you've been telling me, is that when you go to look at these places, because of the demand for rental accommodation, you just lose out. We're not even getting to look at them. We're getting an email to say they found somebody for the property. We're not even getting to look at them at all uh, or even to view them. As I said, a lot of the money wants to do six months. And it must be so frustrating to have to live in an environment like this where you're concerned for your own health and that the health of your children and to be paying €1,200 Euro a month for it, which is dearer than a mortgage for some people. Yeah, sure. We went for our mortgage and we've tried for our mortgage. It works out nearly half the price. Um, frustration it would be an understatement. Nearly a breakdown in the last four weeks for only have two young children that need a mother. Um Hopefully I have them stop coming in to live in area. They still live in the roof and they still live underground. And my point today is to try let people see how hard it is and let them understand that when you are renting and you are trying to get a mortgage, nothing's helping at all. We've applied for a mortgage and I was told to earn a certain amount of money. And I earned a certain amount of money. I went through all the protocols with the bank at the time. And I'd done all that for them. And at the end of it, that was February gone. At the end of it, it wasn't good enough. And then we tried to go to our local authority for try to get on a list. And we got a letter there a couple of weeks ago to tell us that our income is slightly too high to go on a county council list. I rang And you've shown me that letter. And that's quite remarkable that you work part time, your husband works full time and you're not eligible for council housing, yet you can't get a mortgage. We also tried to go to authorities for this new, there was a new uh, thing out for, to help you buy your house, and I was told that they had the people for that already, that that was full up. I asked for, to try for a county council mortgage, and I was told that, what to call it, we had to be refused by three banks for a mortgage. Um, I've went into two other banks since then, being refused, and the both banks want you to go with them. So you're going with them for another six months to 12 months. You're showing that your wages is going in. You're showing that your paying your rent is going out. 
and that's still not guaranteeing you in the six months of mortgage. Like this is after happening to us now twice already and there's no reason why we shouldn't get a mortgage. Both of us are working. We've never been out of work. You know, it's just ridiculous that you're being left in a situation where your landlords don't want to do up the premises and they don't really care because they know there's nowhere else to go closer to where your children are at school. So you'll push pull up with it. Um, they don't even answer the calls. Um, and then if you do try rent anywhere else, like go forward or field, it'd take me 45 minutes to get the kids to school, then another 45 minutes for me to get back to base, to get back to work. So you really are, you feel you're in a catch-22 situation? Around about. Because we're going around in circles for the last three and a half years, four years. Having children is causing a lot of hassle to get a mortgage because you have to have a certain amount of income still coming into the house after you pay your mortgage. But yeah, our mortgage will work out it's in around €875. Euro. And yet we'd still have a surplus of €400 euro there if we weren't paying the rent. But that they want a thousand, I think 500, 1,600 extra coming into the house. And people might say, well, why did you move into that house when it's not fit for purpose? I was promised everything, that they were going to do everything. I don't absolutely any decorating I had to do here to make as homely as I could for the kids. Um, put big cordons on the windows because the windows are so old. You know, you have to do what you have to do for your kids and you'll sacrifice material-wise and you'll sacrifice it looking fantastic as long as your kids have a roof over their head. But unfortunately, with the neglect of the structures and where the rats are getting in and they can still get in. I'll never be free of them. I did get pest control out myself. Um, How many rats were found? Myself personally, uh, one of a very good neighbour actually. Uh, we got three rats out of the walls. Now, it's about, I'd say about another six or seven dead because smell was horrendous in the sitting room so we couldn't sit in there for two weeks. Um, and then this room we're in here now uh, the kitchen area was horrendous, so I haven't cooked a rat in that for two weeks. Um, my local restaurants can tell you that as well. I can just feel the despair coming from you. Oh, yeah. I tell you one thing. I, when I seen them ads on television, and this is what brought it home, and this is why I'm talking to you today. When I seen them ads on television of people in homes and in hotels, I don't know where I'm going to be in another week. And I've got three weeks of Christmas. And I have to put up with this because there is actually nowhere else to go and there is no, it doesn't seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel, yeah. The reason you don't want to be identified, Mary, is because you're afraid that you'll end up being put out of the house with nowhere to go. Yeah, as I said, we've tried every channel we could in the last couple of months and especially in the last four weeks when we had friends living with us, the little rats. When my young lad asked me, I asked him what he'd like for Christmas, as you do do this time of year, all mammies are out there sussing things out. And um, he said he loved a white Christmas tree. I said, oh. I said, a white Christmas tree. I said, okay, no problem. I said, anything else? And he says, I really, really wish Mammy the Rats would go. When are they going to go? He wants to move, yeah. He's, he, he's, he has enough now. But when I seen them ads on that tally the other day, I realised how easy and how so easy it is to have to go into a hotel. Because, like, we, me and my husband have sat down and we've contemplated about putting our stuff into storage and try getting our kids to stay in with a relative if we could and then we'd stay in the hotel just for another couple of months you know maybe six months and then try for a mortgage again but splitting up a whole family for a system that's all so wrong what would you like done for you or what would you like like you're prepared to pay you just want somebody to help you to find a suitable decent safe accommodation someone to help me find suitable 
decent accommodation. But someone also, like as I said, we've been through authorities, we've been through banks, and like we have our wages there. We've been paying the thousand two hundred, and we've been paying rent for a very long time, and we have no problem with our payments. I mean, we've never been in trouble. There's, like there's no reason why we shouldn't have got that mortgage, but that local bank. They send the information to Dublin and it's the head offices that are turning us down, you know. You contacted us because you felt it needed to be highlighted, the plight of people in rental accommodation and what people are being forced to live in, the conditions. Yeah, that's what I contacted. It's just like, it's when I sat down and thought about it, obviously stressed to the hills with the rats and I realised, oh my God. Like, I'm in this situation, and if I heard that, I'd be saying, is that possible? But it is possible. And it is possible that I will have to be gone into somewhere now before Christmas, and I know that. I've accepted that. That local woman, one of your neighbours, perhaps, uh, speaking to Marie Kearns for us. The Michael Reed Show. And let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us uh, this morning. What have you got for us there, Marie? Well, another Marie has been in touch, Michael, uh, from Beliver in County Mead, listening into your interview with Imelda Munster. And she says, I'm sure that each TD and minister working in Leinster House saw the work that was going on there. And I'm sure they knew it was for the printer. Would they not have even been aware of it? Also, she wanted to mention about Minister Ross being so fond of people on bicycles as she puts it and she says I was out yesterday and there were two or two and three out in the road Michael impossible to pass them by I had to beep in order to be able to overtake them and they are using the road the same as cars and I feel that they should be paying car tax so that's her her thoughts for today Mm -hmm. another listener first of all what kind of printer Michael is it to have cost so much in the first place. 800,000. Does mm-hmm. it have special powers? This yeah. listener wants it's the to sort know. of printer that you'd use for printing newspapers and the like. Yeah, mm. Right, so it's, mm. it's a fairly mm. substantial. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. then, says this listener, nobody copped it that it was going to be too big to fit into Leinster House. Mm. You wouldn't make this up, Michael. Where would you see if, if I go out and I buy something for my mm. home, like a new bed or something, yeah. 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 I make sure I have the measuring tape with me. And, mm. you know, you measure it to make sure that it's going to fit through of either the the front door or the back door or a garage door mm. or whatever that you have a way of getting it into the house and it's the same with any item you buy I think this is absolutely ridiculous mm. says this listener okay. uh, when you're spending someone else's money says Anne mm. there's not the same sense of caution clearly as is, as is obvious in this case mm. and I feel there should be a tightening up of the finances in Leinster House Yeah well I, I think part of the cost was that when the machine arrived, they looked at it and thought, God, that looks a bit big. So they thought they'd buy a measuring tape and that cost €25,000. Stop. <laughs> I jest, I jest, I jest. You know yeah, what the yeah, problem I is? Guess, yeah. You'd almost believe it. Yeah, That's the thing. Know, yeah. Well, <laughs> the look on your face, I thought I'd better spell oh, it out no, that I'm no joking. Way, yeah, because yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. I was looking at you going, that couldn't mm, be true. No, but, no. but uh, yes. It is not yeah. true. They did not spend €25,000 on a measuring tape. I was joking. <laughs> Joe from Navin is not too impressed with you this morning, ah, Michael. That's good. He feels that you kept interrupting Imelda Munster and says there's nothing worse. Uh, when you ask someone a question, Michael, mm. and then you answer the question yourself, it mm. seems like you want to be answering your own questions. Mm. And every time you have a Mel de Munster on, you are the same with her. You interrupt her all the time and you don't do that to other TDs. Okay. Says all right. Joe yeah, 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 yeah. I'll 
uh, tried to keep that up for you, Joe. Thanks. Jack says, isn't it strange that a small amount spent on a printer? Well, I don't know whether it's small or not. Uh, I suppose the way you look at it. Uh, and while Jack admits that that's wrong as well, and it's been talked about that there's lots of other uh, projects and issues that the taxpayer has been hit on. And he says, what about the massive bill for the swine flu debacle? Nobody seems to care about all the wasted money. Okay. Uh, I'm sitting listening to you talking about the one million euro printer. Mm. Don't know. This is a texter. Don't know why you're even bother bringing it onto your show, Michael. It's only annoying us yeah. and aggravating us because mm. at the end of the day, nothing is going to be done about it. Well, it's only uh, a million. Uh, I mean, I'm surprised uh, that some of the other information that we gave out this morning uh, didn't uh, raise uh, as much in uh, the way of comments and calls and criticism. I mean, we lost two thousand million euro or thereabouts, one thousand eight hundred million euro uh, on uh, the. Apple tax bill uh, That's right. over nine months. Uh, there has also been the question of €721,000 mixed up currency. Uh, someone thought they were dealing in euro when it was dollars and they lost €721,000 as a result of uh, the exchange. And uh, there's uh, that question of spending €15 million euro instead of a million euro last year on emergency accommodation. Uh, it seems as though money is cheap sometimes. Well, Mary says that the whole thing, the whole saga, mm. the print saga, the printer saga, yep. is like a sketch that Neil Tobin would have done in his day. An absolute farce. Uh, Neil Tobin was funny, but he wasn't that funny. Uh, let's uh, talk uh, about housing. Uh, as you've been hearing on the news this morning, there's a public meeting taking place in uh, Drogheda. Independent Councillor Paddy McQuillan is on uh, the line. A very good morning to you, Paddy, and thanks uh, for joining us. This is a, a kind of uh, an A to Z of uh, things to do with buying houses or paying back back your mortgage, as uh, the case may be. You have a, a lot of people who will join you in the West Court in Drogheda this evening. Uh, good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we're having a, a, more, a housing information, even, as you said, tonight in the West Court at 8pm. Um, we're going to have a few guest speakers from different aspects of housing. Uh, we're going to have Sinead Scully. She's a mortgage specialist for Bank of Ireland, and she will uh, give details on what is required when uh, applying for mortgage, we'll have Ian Farron, solicitor with Farron and Company here in Drada, and he'll explain the role of the solicitor when uh, uh, when people are, are trying to trying to get their mortgage. As and we also have Jim Bennett and Heath from the Housing Agency, and he'll speak about housing agency rules and social and affordable, affordable housing. So when people are going to buy a mortgage, uh, get their mortgage, mm-hmm. I remember he said it can be daunting, it can be like traversing the minefield. So. We have information here uh, firsthand from the specialist on this. We'll also have um, MABS uh, present, uh, the State Agency Money and Advice Budget Service, and we'll also have Rosalind Dotty from the Financial Foundation here in Drogheda. Um, what's the inspiration uh, for this? Have you been hearing from people who are saying it's difficult to get a mortgage, or what is it? We are both. We are hearing from people who are saying it's difficult to get a mortgage. They don't know what how, how to go about it. It's, it it's complicated, and then we're also hearing from people who are having trouble with repaying the mortgages. Like if you look at the, uh, the stats from the Central Bank this year, forty-four percent of all mortgages are two years or more in arrears. That's a, that's a very alarming stat that stems back from the good old days of the Celtic Tiger and the bust that ensued. Uh, and even with the Financial Foundation, Rosalind Dotty, who runs it here in Drada. She's had five or six hundred people come to her for advice, and she has over 150 people now on our books, and she saved over a thousand people 
from leaving their home. So this advice is there for them for tonight. Mm. You know, some people, it, it, it can be, there can be a stigma attached to this, you know. So look, it'd be done discreetly if they wish to speak to anybody after the meeting. Feel free to be rolling over there on hand and throwing mags as well. Okay, so it should be of interest to first-time buyers, people who want to buy for the first time, and those who are in their homes uh, sometime uh, but are, are finding a difficulty uh, finding difficulty in uh, making their repayments. Uh, that's at 8 o'clock in the Westcourt Hotel in Drogheda this evening. Thank you indeed, Independent Councillor Paddy McQuillan, who hosts that meeting, together with Maeve Yor, another Independent Councillor, and Independent Senator Jared Crockwell, as you were hearing earlier on. Now let's go back uh, to some more of uh, the calls that have been coming to us. What else have people been saying to you, Me, the listener, in touch in relation to your interview with uh, Conor Faulkner uh, regarding the traffic gridlock and the farmers' protest. Everyone has a right to protest, says this listener. All the people giving out about the farmers this time around. Maybe start your own protest against the same joke of our lovely government. If they did their jobs correctly, then maybe there would be no problems regarding healthcare, schools, road problems, poverty, housing. The list is endless, says this yeah. listener. I'm not sure that... Uh, uh, people have uh, the right uh, to uh, cause so much disruption. I, I mean, I think you'll find very few people willing uh, to criticise uh, the farmers uh, or the action that they're taking. Uh, but when it, it comes uh, to causing disruption to other people uh, and their means of making a, a living or for getting from A to B or the impact that that has on tourism or business or whatever, I, I think that there probably are some pertinent questions that need to be answered about what's happening in Dublin this morning. Uh, another listener, you need to highlight that highlight that us farmers are not doing this for the crack. It's our livelihood, Michael. Nobody is listening to us. We will protest as long as it takes because when there is no food on your plates, you will know all about it. We are here to be able to supply good food. Yeah, well, I, I don't think anybody objects to the right to protest. Uh, it's the idea of having a, a gun to your head uh, that uh, I think uh, may be greeted with a, a different response. John and Navin says that the government can't give the farmers anything because they don't own or control the factories. There was millions paid out from Europe to the agricultural sector and 80 million to be paid out next week on cattle that was sold last year. What other group can get these payments? Well, there may be some merit in that, but I think the farmers have some legitimate concerns and reason to protest and they're finding it very difficult to make a living. I think, as I was saying earlier on, on the other hand, there is a question over the form of protest that is taking place today. Margaret phoned in listening to your report from Marie about that lady in the rental accommodation. This, this is, is your report. That's obviously. right, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just reading out yeah, what's yeah, said, yeah, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> this is um, the direct result of successive governments and their failure to address properly the housing crisis. It's terrible that people are in a situation where they feel they have no way out of Michael. That um, they're earning too much. Mm. It seems to be on the social housing list. Earning not enough to get a mortgage and mm. priced out of the rental market. And there are so many other people in that situation and this has not been looked at. Yeah, well, it's a, a dreadful situation that that woman and her family finds uh, themselves in. Uh, there is uh, a course of action that is open to them of course which is uh, to report it to the Residential Tenancies Board the RTB which uh, the landlord should have registered with and it is clear that the property is not in line with guidelines and uh, I think that a legitimate complaint can be taken uh, to the RTB and that uh, some action may follow uh, on foot of that The Michael Reed Show 
The Rebuilding Ireland's strategy, which is uh, the government's policy on tackling the housing and homelessness crisis, is not working. Uh, the Social Justice Ireland's annual 32nd Social Policy Conference heard this yesterday, and we'll hear why now, because uh, Colette Bennett, who's research and policy analyst with Social Social Justice Ireland, is on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, and thanks for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. You've been looking at uh, the figures and sometimes statistics uh, turn into white noise for people but they are particularly interesting statistics in that you were looking at the amount of children who are homeless in uh, this country 3,873 and out of those who are homeless uh, you estimate that 581 of those children have been homeless for two years or more and that 1,743 children in this country have been homeless for a year or more perhaps you'd outline for us the consequences of that Okay, well, in terms of, and thank you very much for having me on, um, in terms of the Rebuilding Ireland strategy, it, it covers five pillars. So addressing homelessness is one of them, accelerating social housing, building more homes, improving the rental sector and, and utilising existing housing. And at the time, while we welcomed a, an overarching five-pillar model, we were very quick to flag the fact that the, the targets there were modest at best and really weren't going to make a dent in actually uh, addressing the housing crisis. Well, um, the opposite has happened, as you highlighted yesterday. Homelessness absolutely. has increased by 59%. But you were saying that children who are born into or are at risk of becoming homeless uh, have serious problems. They're not able to crawl or walk uh, or chew food uh, because of a lack of facilities for parents. Absolutely. So... In terms of you know ch- children's development into homelessness, and again, one of the the action points in rebuilding Ireland was that family homelessness um, families wouldn't be required to access emergency accommodation except in in exceptional circumstances. But yet we've seen that family homelessness have actually, has actually risen by over fifty five percent, and the impact on that, and it's been reported by by homeless services over so the likes of, of Focus and Simon and Peter McVeary, and most recently um, a service in Limerick, and they have reported um, children presenting with particular difficulty um, in in feeding. So their parents, because there are no um, cooking facilities in hotels and bed mm. and breakfasts, of course. Their parents are using, the, you know, the pouches um, mm. of convenience, kind of children's food, because there is some nutritional value in that, at least. But you're meant to wean from that. So these children have been have been using these pouches for far longer than would usually be the case. And what that means is, you know, their their development in terms of chewing and swallowing is being delayed because people probably don't realise because we do it at such an early age. But feeding is actually a learned skill. So it's mm. like riding a bike and, and walking. Um, and if you don't build up those muscles, if you don't learn to do that, it can create serious difficulties in terms of, you know, your, your tongue, your jaw, your esophagus. They all have to be built. So it creates difficulties both in feeding, which obviously then have an impact in nutrition and other development, um, but also in terms of speech, because you there, you know, there are some clinicians who would find a link between speech development and feeding patterns in in young children. Or we heard a a South African woman uh, speak uh, this week about conditions living in a hotel in a direct provision accommodation centre and how our children uh, can't run uh, because uh, it's in a hotel and they'll disturb people uh, and the confined space that people are put into in these circumstances can have other effects on the children. Absolutely. So because there's no space, they can't 
learn to crawl, they can't learn to walk, they've no place to play. And all of those things are critically important for, for ch- children's development. So the first five years, and you know, we have a children's strategy for five years for a reason. The first five years is critically important in a child's life. And if you know, there are delays in development at that stage, they're very, very difficult to make up at a later stage. Mm. Um, and the, the, the important thing in relation to, to homelessness is that more and more children and families are being discharged from treatment into homelessness. We have children now being born into homelessness. Um, so the report from Temple Street earlier on this year was informative there as well, where where they have um, 842 discharges of children into homelessness and what they are seeing is an increase in developmental um, issues for those children again because they're in cramped conditions because they're not getting nutritious food or where there is an element of nutrition it's not maybe the most appropriate food for their age group Mm. and if development is affected in one way let's say a child is late to crawl or walk because of confined conditions uh, does this affect affect other areas of development um, well, yeah, so it, it also affects their emotional um, development and their, their social skills, because if they're confined to a room with, you know, other adults or, or adults and, and just their immediate family and, and, and children, mm. um, they're not getting the opportunity to really engage with a community. They're not getting the opportunity to, to interact. And there's a huge body of work, um, particularly in the psychology side of things, on this particular area. And again, I mean, in another report that was issued earlier this year in April, the the Office of the Children's Ombudsman, um, they reviewed the experiences of children in um, family hubs. And because this was was a measure that was introduced in 2017 as an alternative to bed and breakfast and hotels. But again, it's not and should never have been a long-term solution. Um, So what they found was that the experience of children is that, again, they have no privacy. They have no space. Mm. The walls are quite thin, so they're hearing other people's arguments. So even if their family circumstances are relatively stable insofar as they ever could be in that position, they're still hearing other people's fights, other people's arguments. They've nowhere to do homework. They've nowhere to read on their own. So if one child wants to do homework at a desk, They have to go to the communal space, which means their parent has to go. And if there are any other children, they have to go too. Uh, So it's it's a very difficult space to really, you know, engage as a child and to have this experience of of being a child. Mm. Um, And And you just kind of enter into a cycle then at that stage, uh, because uh, as a result of that, uh, you could be slower in school than other children. And uh, if you're developing at a a slower rate than other children, you're going to notice that. That's going to affect your confidence. If your confidence is affected, well, that's going to impact on your development and so on you keep going around in circles but what's the solution to all of this I mean everybody seems to think that they have uh, the solution there's only one thing everybody agrees on and that's uh, the level of supply meeting demand the government though has all of the answers to that uh, and despite the dire situation we're in they say give us time other people say they have other solutions the government says they won't work for other reasons Uh, but what do you make of it all? Yeah, I mean, cr- critically, we need to increase supply, but we in- we need to increase supply of the, the right types of housing. So, for example, you know, another of the the pillars um, was to, to increase construction generally. Uh, but what we're seeing is the construction that is being um, put together now, we're looking at student accommodation, we're looking at very, very high-end apartments um, or very low-end kind of high-price 
but small um, co-living spaces. We're not looking at building homes. We're not looking at building homes for families. Um, and essentially what we're having is a huge affordability crisis. So there needs to be an injection of investment into social housing. Um, and, you know, there's this narrative that we all need to have, um, a, a, you know, a, a, a tenure across the board. There needs to be appropriate housing for everybody. But we need to be very clear that with seven, almost 71,000 households on the social housing waiting list as of last summer, um, sorry, the summer 2018, mm-hmm. we need an increase in social housing, absolutely. Um, but we also need affordable housing. We need affordable rental and a, a, a cost rental type scheme. Um, and there are developments that can do this, that can be modelled. So, for example, um, the cooperative development that was there in the, the 80s and, and early 90s and is now being revisited by the likes of Okulon Co-op. Um, in their developments in, in Poppentry and Ballymun, they can do it at a very low cost. So construction costs aren't the problem. Uh, land is the problem. And there's a huge amount of land zoned um, for residential building that is owned by the state. The state need to start building on it. What's your assessment of this in terms of uh, the timescale that we're looking at in uh, the way things stand given the approach that we're taking at at the moment uh, are we looking at talking about this problem in 10 20 years from now i mean i would i would desperately hope we wouldn't be but if things don't change then we then almost certainly we will um because this is a strategy that is just it's going in the wrong direction and there seems to be no political impetus to change course on any of it so you know when we look at the, the five pillars we know that you know homelessness has been increasing, um, and people are spending longer in homeless emergency accommodation. So, for example, we're seeing people over a year, over two years, um, in that situation. Fifteen percent of families, two years or more, and that's coming from the the, the official data from from government. Um, we're seeing that you know the acceleration of, of social housing. Yes, we have had more social housing than in the previous decade. But the previous decade, we had a recession. You know, when, we're, when we had like social housing at its, its height, we were looking at the 60s, 70s, 80s. We weren't a rich country then, and we could provide for people. We could build social housing. Um, but yet we seem to be looking instead to a reliance on, on the private sector to do the job for us. And the private sector are profit-driven. We're creating industries out of misery, um, building more homes, we haven't even met the targets that we had. So the target was initially, you know, an average of 25,000. Then it was going to be 25,000 per year. We haven't reached 25,000 in any year that Rebuilding Ireland was there. Um, and in, in fact, last year, it was just over 18,000. And that includes the social housing build. Um, when we look at the rental sector and, and improvements that were meant to be made there, I mean, it's crazy what's happening there now. You know, no one can afford to rent a proper home. Long-term renting just doesn't really exist. We have people who are commuting massive different distances mm. in low-paid jobs because that the jobs are in the cities and the affordable accommodation, and I, I put that in, you know, in, in, in mm. commas, um, is out, you know, in in former rural areas. Um, so, we're, you know, and tenant protections are barely existent. The local authority inspections um, of rented properties are minimal. I mean, there's just over 7% were inspected last year. And of those, um, almost almost 90% 
were found to be you know deficient in some way in relation to the targets. And then we look at you know existing housing and we look at bringing vacants into use. So the census of of uh, 2016 suggested that there were 183,000 um, vacant properties. Some of those should be brought into use. Um, but in terms of, of the, the engagement on that, it's glacially, glacially slow. Mm-hmm. Local authorities have a number of voids. Now, they have brought a lot of those into use in, in previous years. But now, you know, the, I'm sorry, the, the, the voids are the, the vacant local authority properties. Um, but really, you know, the, the incentive to bring more of those into use has been detracted by the rebuilding Ireland because they have capped uh, targets for doing that. And they only report up to the amount of the target. So there's growth underreporting um, in terms of, you know, those void units by local authorities, not because they want to, but because they have to, because the official data is now only based on up to a particular target. Um, So really, in terms of what needs to be done, we need to improve across the board. We need to stop... Or go back um, to the drawing board, as uh, the case may be, and take a a fresh look at the problem. Okay, Colette, I have to leave there for an overtime, but nice to talk to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Colette Bennett, Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Uh, Let's talk uh, about proposed legislation which will go uh, to Shannon's Aaron this evening, which hopes uh, to improve uh, the pay of low-paid workers. We're joined uh, by Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash, uh, who is uh, tabling uh, this bill and uh, it uh, goes back to 2011 I think if I'm not mistaken when the JLCs were found to be unconstitutional. These were the national agreements which would have uh, determined uh, the pay of many low paid workers across many different sectors. Eight sectors if I'm not mistaken. Seven seven, Seven sectors. Uh, Currently there's only two sectors that are covered by uh, national agreements. Is that right? That's right yeah. Just to give a a little history lesson if Mm -hmm. I can. We've had actually joint labour committees in one form or another Michael, since 1909. Actually, Winston Churchill set them up. They were called trade boards. Uh, And then on the establishment of uh, the Irish state, uh, um, we continued on with that tradition uh, where trade unions and employers in sectors of the economy that are generally low paid and where there's very low trade union density, uh, trade unions and employers would come together under the aegis of the Labour Court uh, to customise a kind of solution um, for particular industries and agreements that would be reached uh, were called employment regulation orders. Uh, they would then be applied right across an economic sector, like hotels, for example, mm-hmm. restaurants, uh, security, hairdressing, and, and agriculture. This a, a minimum wage for those it's workers. A minimum wage above the national, the different national to the national minimum wage, yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah, and that, yeah, that's yeah, the point. Yeah, it establishes a kind of floor of decency above the national minimum yeah. wage. And in the context of, for example, contract cleaning and security, yeah. where there are two joint labour committees in place at the moment, I signed the first two new employment regulation yeah. orders for those sectors back in uh, October 2015. Not only do they introduce pay rates that are higher than the national minimum wage and contract cleaning at the moment is €10.80 an hour, yeah. legally applicable minimum wage, and it's €11.65 in security, but it also provides, for example, improvements to terms and conditions like sick pay schemes, pension schemes, and guaranteed minimum numbers of hours for security guards. It also, as well, ends the farcical situation where contract cleaners up until 2015 had to pay for their own uniforms. Mm, mm. Uh, and the 
rate of pay far higher than the national minimum wage, which is 980. 980 uh, at the moment, yeah. yeah. And all of that was working uh, well, I think, across the seven sectors that we're talking about until a number of restaurants. uh, There was Supermax, Abracababra, Eddie Rockets and uh, some others involved in a a judicial challenge. They took a a case to the High Court and said that it was unfair and that the Labour Court was being given too much power to tell them what to pay their employees. It was back in 2011 and uh, the the Joint Labour Committee system um, was considered to be potentially on shaky constitutional ground for a number of years. Uh, a case was taken by uh, a group of fast food um, operators um, because they wanted to pay nothing but the minimum wage um, to staff and nothing above that. Or to decide um, what rate. Or to decide what the rate w- mm. would be themselves without having to engage, of course, with um, trade unions under the ages of the Labour Court. Ultimately, what they wanted to do was let the market decide, uh, accepting at the same time that there is a statutory national minimum wage that people mm. uh, should be paid legally. Uh, essentially, what the court case said was that um, the Labour Court uh, became a law-making body, so it was instructing um, employers to introduce particular rates of pay without having regard to the Oireachtas. Um It's a technical area. Mm. Um, we addressed that in a 2012 Amendment Act, uh, ensuring that um, what would happen subsequently, um, we, we re-established a Joint Labour mm. Committee system, uh, and when an employment regulation order was produced by the Joint Labour Committee, it had to be sent to the Minister and tabled before the Oireachtas for adoption. And that's what happened with the contract cleaning and security employment regulation so orders. So that's why working very well. they're now working under... Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But the problem we have here is this. Subsequent to the new legislation coming in, the hotels, Irish Hotels Federation, the um, representative mm. body for most hotels or a significant number of hotels across this country took a judicial review case uh, saying essentially that, well, it's not compulsory on us to engage in a joint Labour committee, so we'll effectively do what we want. And a minister then decided essentially not to challenge that. A minister decided, well, I'm happy with that because in essence we believe that these are voluntary bodies, there's no compulsion uh, and no obligation on either employers or trade unions to involve themselves in it. And And they have constitutional rights as well, they have property rights. They have property rights, which of course property rights in this country are given huge priority and prominence uh, in our constitution. Mm. And the point I'll be making later today to the minister, and I've no doubt that Minister Humphreys uh, and it's Minister Humphreys, I gather, who'll be taking this legislation, will say, well, there's a constitutional issue with this. There isn't. Mm. This is a mechanical issue, nothing else. This is about process and procedure. And what we are proposing to get to the nitty-gritty of this, Michael, is that we have at the moment mm. uh, a view taken by, for example, the Restaurants Association and the Irish Hotels Federation that they won't engage in joint labour committees because they don't feel that they're required to. So... We have a system in place here at the moment, a system of processes and procedures that when they're exhausted, when the Labour Court, court invites the parties in to have mm. a discussion about what a decent rate of pay and decent terms and conditions should be in a particular sector, yep. if these organisations continue to block the function of joint Labour committees that are actually reflected in the law of the mm. land, mm. then we will empower the Labour Court but it, to actually yeah. do an independent examination mm. of pay terms and conditions in, for example, the hotel it's, sector it's their and business. introduce an employment but regulation I mean, they, order recommend it to the Minister in a normal way for adoption by the Iraqis. Okay, but it's their business. Does that not breach their constitutional property rights? Uh, and by hauling them in in that way, does that not breach their human rights under European law? Uh, No, because uh, what uh, trumps everything is the common interest and the public good. Um, It's been long established since 1909 that where industries um, are addicted to low pay, 
uh, where the state takes the view in its laws that it is a good idea for mm. trade unions and employers to come together to create decent terms and conditions for workers. Uh, that That's a positive thing. Um, and it's our view, and it's been a long-held view. For whom? For everybody, for society generally. But, but is it for those who fall outside of these agreements? Those people who are not covered by the agreements? Well, it, it is up to the state. The state, for example, give mm. an example. Because you will continue to have the national minimum wage we will. Uh, for people who are not covered by JLCs or EROs or whatever title you put yeah. on, on these Sexual agreements. Sexual employment yeah, orders, yeah, yeah, like yeah, construction yeah. workers, whatever, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if people continue to be on the minimum wage uh, and they're looking at people in fast food restaurants uh, who are earning maybe 11 or 11.65, uh, is that fair? Uh, Well, I think it is, because what we need to be promoting, Michael, is not not a race to the bottom, Mm. but a race to the top. And by the way, there's nothing radical about this legislation. I'll tell you why. This is common practice in progressive European Mm. countries with successful economic models like Germany, like France, Mm. uh, many other countries that uh, we can mention here this morning. And there is no reason why Ireland should be an outlier. Mm. Um, The law has taken the view, the Oireachtas, what this is actually about, is trying to ensure that we make good on the intentions of the Oireachtas back mm. in 1946 and back in 2012. Mm. We have a system of laws here uh, that are... Um, but that does it not discriminate against others? That by by, by uh, taking uh, an action that could be considered laudable in bringing up the pay of low-paid workers or of some low-paid workers, does it not discriminate against others uh, who find themselves impoverished because their level of pay uh, has decreased uh, effectively because they continue to be on the same rate of pay uh, and others who are in low-paid jobs well, get a pay increase. Well, how we do that, how we do that, Michael, and how we uh, actually increase the incre- national minimum improve wage. that floor of decency that I like to call mm-hmm. the threshold of decency is by transforming the minimum wage into what's considered to be a living wage, mm. which at the moment is over €12 Euros an hour. And that's actually what ultimately what we want to do. So when collective bargaining mm. systems fail and when they're not being operated, then the state needs to step in to ensure that there's a level of decency for mm. people. Because we're spending, Michael, at the moment, €430 million Euros each year mm. on what's known as the working family payment. That's supporting uh, uh, about 53,000 families across this country who are working in areas like retail, hospitality, uh, hotels, mm. uh, who can't actually make ends meet themselves, who need essentially a subsidy from the state to be able to provide for themselves and their children. Um, what we're trying to do here is to make sure mm. that the resources we have as a state are focused on the areas that need investment, but like our healthcare system, like our schools. Do, do, do you not understand like my argument that there are some people who will say that do. it is unfair? Because, I mean, you're talking about collective bargaining. Collective bargaining for whom? I mean, let's say fast food workers uh, who uh, really have very little in common other than they got a, a job and fair play to them. And yes, they do deserve uh, a decent standard of living. Uh, but if you take office workers, for example, they won't fall under one of these. Uh, many of them will say, God, are you trying to tell me that I'd be better off getting a job in the local burger shop? Yeah, well, well, they won't because, and, and remember, I mean, and since I published this legislation, mm. as you can imagine, I've been contacted by uh, a number of restaurant owners, for example, mm. and hotel owners mm. across this constituency, and I've talked them through, mm. actually, what it is we're seeking to do. And what I actually realise, and what they tell me, well, we're paying a particular rate, well, so you've nothing to fear from because mm. actually you're a good employer oh, yes, with yeah, decent yeah, terms yeah. and conditions. This is actually mm. rooting out bad practice in the mm. sector but and if you bringing take office workers, wages up. So, for example... Take office I mean, workers you, yeah. who would be quite uh-huh. skilled uh, mm-hmm. uh, 
and would need a, what many would consider to be a higher level of skill than, let's say, somebody working in a fast food restaurant. Uh, but they work in different sectors, they work in different industries. Uh, there is no collective bargaining available for them and they can continue to be on minimum wage if that's what their employer uh, decides. Yeah, but the Labour Force survey that was published just yesterday shows that office workers aren't by and large, on the national minimum By and wage. large. They, they, are, they are, yeah, absolutely. By, yeah, and and no, it is, of course, it is open. By, yeah. It is open. And many, many office mm, workers may, are. And, and me, me, many fast food restaurants are not on minimum wage. Uh, they're not, exactly. And, and those who operate those mm. restaurants who are paying well in excess of the minimum mm. wage, and many are, have nothing to fear from introducing a new floor of decency uh, in those sectors, but you could which use the bring same, everybody But you could up. use the same argument uh, regardless of who you're talking about. Surely the answer here is the national minimum wage rather than sectoral agreements well I, I would actually I actually prefer right and it is, it is standard practice across Europe and developed Western European democracies that the best way to customize solutions for particular industries is through sectoral bargaining so that's where trade unions and employers come together and say what fits best mm. for my industry what can I absorb as an employer what gives me certainty over my labor costs mm-hmm. and trade unions say well what works best for for our members and the people we represent in that industry well, of course that's the works, best way to do it of course it works best and, and, for trade unions but where, but where, because they don't have to but, do it on where, a local level but where collective bargaining fails uh, and where we have situations here where employers for example continue mm. to veto uh, the laws of the land uh, and the will of the Oireachtas then this is where, for example, the state must step in to increase and improve uh, national minimum uh, rates of pay. Um, that's the obligation of the state. Mm. That's the duty of the state. Because I'll be frank with you, Michael, I think it's a disgrace that we have to pay, spend €430 million Euros of taxpayers' money every year subsidising, in many okay. cases, big corporations working in retail, big hotel chains for chains who are paying poverty wages to workers. All right. Got to leave it there. Uh, your bill will go to the Shannon this evening and uh, thank you for joining us here on the programme today. Michael. That's Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash. The Michael Reid Show. Now, legislation uh, which would uh, seal uh, the records uh, from uh, the Commission to inquire into child abuse or the Ryan Report and uh, the Residential Institutions Redress Board as well as uh, the Residential Institutions Redress Review Committee for 75 years is uh, to be put on hold because of uh, the wisdom of keeping records of the testimony of child abuse victims out of sight for so long is uh, being called into question. Yesterday uh, the Education Committee heard uh, from a number of representatives uh, including uh, those uh, who had been in institutions and suffered child abuse. Uh, One of uh, the people who uh, testified in front of uh, the committee was Carmel MacDonald Byrne. Survivors did not agree to the destruction or sealing of their records when they agreed to participate in the commission and or when they applied to the redress board. They want their often harrowing experience of giving testimony to matter and to ensure that this never happens again. All survivors should have the right to decide for themselves if they would like to access any records relating to them. It's very important on our healing journey that we are empowered to make decisions and choices, something denied us as children. Survivors deserve the right to own a copy of their testimony if they want. It is important for my children grandchildren and future generations to understand what happened in Ireland and how thousands survived this very harsh and shameful regime. Sinn Féin Senator Paul Gavin is a a member of uh, that committee. He's on the line with us now and a very good morning to you and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, What are your own thoughts on this? Were people not told that if uh, they testified uh, to uh, the Commission uh, that their testimony would not be seen for 75 years? Well, actually, I think uh, they were told that it would be destroyed, was it not? 
Well, thank you, Mike, for highlighting this um, uh, this very important bill, uh, which which Sinn Féin have huge concerns over. Um, the original testimonies there was never uh, there were people who testified were never told that the testimonies would be destroyed. That's the first thing to say, uh, and I think many of your listeners will be will be shocked to hear that the current government, uh, with the support of Fianna Fáil, uh, up until yesterday, uh, were planning to seal these records. Uh, we are talking mm. about women and children who were incarcerated, tortured, forced into servitude, systematically degraded, denied identity and education, and separated from family members in a network of church-related state-supported institutions. And effectively, this bill would seal their testimonies for 75 years. Mm. That would have a huge impact on people still looking for data, still looking uh, for family reunification. The data wouldn't be available. It's... uh, traumatizes the victims and survivors once again. And we heard from a number of survivors yesterday and a number of academics. The message from the survivors was absolutely consistent that this bill should be stopped. And the message from academics was that this bill actually isn't isn't even necessary. There's existing legislation, the National Archives Bill, which puts in place adequate protections to ensure that where there are issues of privacy or protection for living witnesses, that, that that data can then be withheld through the National Archives Bill. Right. Uh, I don't know. I, I think your memory is different to mine. I, I think uh, at the time people said that they testified on the basis uh, that their testimony was confidential and they would have been of the belief uh, that uh, the records of uh, what they told to the Commission would have been destroyed. Well, it was certainly confidential. But here's the thing, and, and, and again, maybe your listeners will be shocked to hear this. People have testified at the Mother and Baby Homes Commission investigation who've asked for the transcripts after mm. they've gone and testified, have been refused. So, so witnesses and survivors cannot even access their own testimony. And the clear message from survivors yesterday was, this is grossly unfair. And indeed, I mean, here's a question I would pose. Surely we need a bill not to restrict information, but actually to make information available, particularly all of those church institution records that are currently hidden and still hidden from, from, from the state and still hidden... But what about uh, the commitment the that was given to the people who testified? If they did uh, give testimony, if uh, they gave an account of what happened to, to them uh, on the basis that it was to be confidential, uh, how can that goodwill be breached? Well, he- here's the thing. The, 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 the people who came into us yesterday, the survivors, and we had a whole load more um, written submissions mm. into the committee, Consistently, each and every one of them have said that they do not want this information sealed, that they still want to be able to access information themselves or at least be given the choice to access the information. Well, that's, that, 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 that is a, a different thing. But for people, uh, because you haven't spoken to all of the survivors, I think there's been consultation with just 100 uh, survivors. Uh, some undoubtedly would be dead, apart from anything else, who would have uh, testified. Uh, uh, and surely uh, they have rights as well. Well, they do, but as I said earlier, those rights would be very adequately protected through the existing National Archives Bill. There's a section in that bill, Section 8.4, which actually details where there's any danger to living people, where there's where it's not in the interest. That's abusers. That's abusers' names would be redacted. What about uh, the people who were abused? Well, actually, no, it it, it isn't that specific. So, so it it can also protect the victims where where there are concerns. The, the, the bill is there, it's in place, it's already in place for the Ryan Commission, and has been working perfectly, perfectly well. Indeed, the, head, the former head of National Archives, mm. Katrina Crow, came into us yesterday, and she was very, very strong in her evidence 
both saying that the National Archives Bill would serve this purpose adequately and that she could see no reason for this bill whatsoever. And I have to say, Michael, there is a reason for this bill, and the reason is the same reason we've always had from this state, which is to shut down the conversation, mm. to shut down evidence, to basically say we've heard enough at this point, um, and I don't think that's good enough. Well, I, I don't think there's a reason for this bill. I don't think there's a, a reason for publishing the records, uh, or, or maybe there is a reason for either, but there certainly is a reason, uh, it has to be said, for fulfilling a commitment to people who were terribly abused and neglected by the state. Uh, and if we don't fulfil that commitment to them, uh, what does it do? Is it, is it a, a abuse on top of the abuse that they suffered? Well, here's the thing. I mean, the consistent message that I've got, not just from the 100 people who, who came in, who, who were contacted with the, with the Oroxus Committee, but also through all of the survivor, and, uh, survivor support groups, each and every one of them have said that this bill would be a disaster and is not necessary. Now, if there was one or two that were saying we've got concerns, I think we should hear those. But mm. actually, there hasn't. There hasn't mm. been. Everyone is consistent about this bill being quite sinister, frankly, in terms of trying to literally seal this information for three generations. And when you think about it, and I speak from personal experience here, Michael, I have a sister-in-law who was denied uh, ever knowing her mother by the nuns in Ross Gray. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was only thanks to a private detective and being able to access this, this information in the recent couple of years that she managed to contact some of her relations, her mother's long since passed. Um, now, that type of journey would be impossible once this bill is passed. How could that ever be justified? Okay, Paul, I wish we had more time, but we ran over our time on other issues, and I have to leave it there because we're out of time. But thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. That's uh, Sinn Féin Senator Paul Gavin, who brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reid Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.